All right, so we'll kick off Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month uh, in September with the Clash of the Titans. No, That's fair. That, that sounds better than it really is. <laughs> the September 2nd um, Big Ten opener with IU hosting your, should I say your? I think that's fair. Yeah, that's they're fair. mine. They're yeah. not mine, that's for sure. Yeah, they're mine in this the room. The Ohio State Buckeyes. Um, so I assume you're going to go down to the game. That's the plan. Down I, to God's country, as I like to call Bloomington, Indiana. Absolutely. We'll be there. <laughs> um, you just said your husband goes to, or went to Ohio State. Um, and so while you didn't go to there yourself, you'll be decked out in Ohio State gear, I assume. I will. I was inducted into the Ohio State, and notice I said the Ohio right. State, um, for better or for worse. If you leave the out, are you quickly corrected? All the time. My <laughs> husband is the number one corrector. <laughs> what is what is your uh, prediction for that game? I mean, we, I think we know the outcome in terms of like just straight who's going to win, who's going to lose. But what would you what are you what are you predicting from a score standpoint? I'm going to go, it's going to be high. It's going to be 45 to three. I'm going to oh, give wow. you guys a, a field goal. Maybe. Okay. Thanks. Appreciate the generosity. That was, it feels a little <laughs> generous, but. All right. So I'm going to take, I'm going to take the under. I, I agree that I, I sh- maybe I should say the under in terms of um, uh the margin of loss for us. I'm going to say we'll have more than three points. We certainly, I think, we'll, we'll lose the game. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be as bad as 45 to three. That's optimistic. I, I appreciate optimistic. the optimism. That's right? fine. Yeah. Okay. So uh, if, if I win, you owe me an adult beverage. If you win, I owe you an adult beverage. How's that? That's, How's very, that fair. That's right. very fair. That's very fair. Cool. All right. Um, anything else? Any other fun fact about Ohio State that we should know? Oh, man. Um I think the jump into Mirror Lake when it's really cold is okay. probably just the most fun thing in the entire world. But also, if you jump into Mirror Lake, you actually can't get COVID, is the rumor <laughs> on the street, uh, because that's how gross it is. Right. Mm-hmm. You suddenly become immune to a whole lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my husband apparently has done it five times, oh. uh-huh, and my sister-in-law twice, and I will not be joining in on that festivity. But Okay, that's fair. Where does this lake reside? I assume right on, is it on campus? It's on campus, and okay. you have to jump in when it is absolutely frigid. Okay. Um, and then you immediately run away for whatever adult beverage is waiting for you. But oh. it's kind of an indoctrin into the Ohio State culture. And you haven't done it yet? I have not. I okay. don't know if I classify as an official Ohio State alumni. I did my training there, That's but true. I didn't actually, I don't have a diploma from the Ohio State. Uh, well. There's still, a, there's still an opportunity. There's still a chance. <laughs> there's still a chance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, our wager's set. We'll, uh, I guess we'll see September 2nd. What we, happens. we will. All right, cool. Is this thing on? All right, guys. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Summits Podcast. Thank you all for joining us from wherever you guys get your podcasts, or if you happen to be joining us on the Heroes Foundation YouTube channel. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you guys. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jennifer Belsky. Dr. Belsky, welcome to the Summits Podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Awesome. Um, Why don't you introduce yourself for all our listeners and viewers? 
Yeah. So um, my name is Jenny Belsky. I actually have been here in Indiana now for about three years. I work at Riley Hospital for Children, and I'm the director of the lymphoma program there. Um, I am a Midwest girl. I've been all over Ohio, and I've been very fortunate to work here in Indiana for the last three years. All of my time has been at Riley. Um, from a professional standpoint, I work a lot with our leukemia and lymphoma kiddos. Um, we see anyone all the way up to age 30 at Riley, so um, get to hang out with anyone from newborn babies all day to what we like to refer to, I guess, as adults when you're 30. I think you're technically an adult. Yeah. Um, so love my job, have a great job, and um, live up here in Westfield. Um, what brought you, so you, I know undergrad, Ohio University, correct? Mm -hmm. And then um, you did resident or you did training at um, Nationwide in Columbus. Mm -hmm. What then brought you to Indy to Riley? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so my best friend actually lives in Carmel, and um, she was essentially like my sister growing up, and our mm -hmm. godkids live here. So um, saw the opportunity at Riley, had heard wonderful things about Riley. So came out here to check it out and just really fell in love with the hospital. Um, and I appreciated that Riley was going to give me the opportunity to do not necessarily life-saving cancer research, but to make um, make the journey for kids going through cancer treatment better from a supportive care standpoint. Yeah. So when, when did you know this was the field that you wanted to go into? I'd love to lie and be like, I just was born and I <laughs> right. knew this. That would not be true. Uh, I actually thought I was going to go into type one diabetes research okay. until, um, intern year at, um, in my training. And I met a wonderful girl. Her name is Lou. Um, and I took care of her for the four weeks that I was there and left, left the floor and turned and said, I am in the wrong spot with diabetes. And okay. so pivoted to oncology and really never looked back. Yeah. But you had a feeling that you wanted to, at what point did you want to go into research and, and what, was there any particular moment or, um, did something happen that, that triggered that? I don't know if it was a specific moment that I wanted to go into research. I think I just became more and more frustrated not knowing answers. So okay. I would I would see a patient and there would be a question come up and I would say, well, why do we do it this way? And all I could hear is, well, that's how we've always done it. So then I'd go and I'd look at the data and there's not any data there. So I right. just started seeing these gaps and holes and getting really frustrated and said, well, who's, who's going to fill that gap? Who's going to fill that hole? And then I realized maybe I am a, a researcher and um, then just took off from there. Right. But it wasn't like I was in fourth grade, something happened. I said, research is what I wanted to get into. No, I'd love to lie and say like there was a super cool science experiment, but right. I, I majored in English initially. I wanted to be an English okay. teacher. Um, but the more, I think that's one of the perks of residency, right? You, you work the hundred hour week, so you get exposure yeah. to all these things. And as you get more and more exposure and see more and more patients, you slowly start to figure out what am I really passionate for? What do I sure. want to come to work a hundred hours a week to do? And for right. me, it was, I want to solve all these problems and, and these unanswered questions. Yeah. I think I, I'm making an assumption here, but based on how you answered it is that line of this is the way we've, all, we've always done it makes you cringe as much as it makes me tr cringe. It's so cringy. Uh, yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's a great way, okay. But Typically, I think when we when we get that answer uh, from people, it's I don't know it it just means that like okay well there's only one constant in life and that's change, and now there may be a better way of doing it. And when I I, I get this all the time, 
from some of our folks like, well, that's just the way we've always done it. I'm like, well, okay, well, that doesn't mean it's the right way or that doesn't mean there's now not a better way. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. There's a better way to take notes now. There is. For some of us. There is. And I, I, I struggle with that a lot. And yeah. I think that a lot of us, we call ourselves kind of the new guard that comes in in oncology because the old guard is so focused on, you know, we need to cure cancer and we come in and we say, okay, well, we're getting better at curing it, but, but what are these gaps that aren't necessarily a cure, right? Why are we still doing it this way when it's 2023, we have new resources, so we almost can't keep up with ourselves. Yeah. So that's an interesting point. We've talked um, to a lot of physicians and, and other folks in the called the cancer space or the cancer world. And yes, we're still trying to cure cancer. There's a, there's a variety of cancers out there that um, some we've been very successful at and some that we still have a long way to go. Uh, but to your point, while that's still a big focus, there is also this, okay, well, um, let's look at the treatments. Um, the treatment I had 23 years ago for Hodgkin's lymphoma, it worked. I'm still here. That's great. But it was like carpet bombing, everything, good and bad. All right, so is there a better way? You know, things have evolved in some cases. So, hey, now we can attack just the bad stuff and not put the patient through as much hell to and still have a, a very successful outcome. Um, th- I think those are, are really important. And I think we've all seen cases also where the patient didn't make it not so much because of the cancer itself, and I'm, hopefully I'm not saying this incorrectly, but because the treatment was so brutal that that's almost what killed them or, or what did kill them. Yeah, and that's, to me, the worst the worst possible death to mm-hmm. me, and that's something that I feel very passionate about is um, you have a kid. I mean, Hodgkin is a great example, right? Our survival for Hodgkin is, you know, in the 90s right now, 92 93%, especially with lower-stage disease, and it happens not infrequently where either we give our medications and we can do a PET scan and see absolutely no signs of cancer, but instead we're left with an infection or sepsis or an intensive care unit stay for a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had patients who have needed ostomies or essentially their intestines on the outside because they had such a horrible infection. And you look back and you say, could we have given you less therapy and still still cured your cancer. And right. that's that's one of the major focuses right now, particularly in Hodgkin's, is how do we de-escalate therapy and leave these patients in a better spot than they were before? Yeah, um, that's awesome. Pediatric oncology. Um, if you had, if, if, I had, if I asked you to give us an overview of pediatric oncology, I know it's a pretty broad spectrum, um, what comes to mind? And that's a hard one, okay. <laughs> Uh, well, for me, I mean, I think my job's awesome. Um, and I, I think the whole gamut of acute care, you get kids who are just sick as stink that come in, you know, we, we try to keep them alive all the way up to you get these survivors that I get to follow my patients for five years out. Um, so I think one word that would come to me is longitudinal care for these patients, which was, is one of the reasons that I got into the field is I love the acute rapid thinking, okay, I've got a sick kid in front of me. How do we save their life all the way up to, okay, we've treated them. Let's put this person back together to mm-hmm. the life that they, they once had. Um, I think the answer is really different based off of who you ask. I'm really fortunate that I do leukemia and lymphoma where our survival rates are, are high. Um, but if you bring one of my solid tumor colleagues in here that does sarcoma, they're going to sit in front of you and say, 
probably the word frustrated because we haven't made any advancements on a lot of our solid tumors, despite everyone trying so hard to find a cure. And we just, we just haven't found it yet. Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, I know one of the frustrating aspects of pediatric oncology and and this, this could be a whole nother episode um, on its own, excuse me, but um, talking about the lack of funding for research. Um, what can you share there? What, what, what's, what have you seen firsthand and, and what are some of the frustrations within the industry? Yeah, I, I, every time I think about funding, so I think everyone knows, or maybe everyone doesn't know is, is we get pediatric oncology gets 4% of, of funding. Um, and there's always this meme that goes around that has a picture of a Starbucks cup and it says that's the equivalent of if you didn't get one Starbucks beverage a day, if everyone mm. in America didn't get one Starbucks beverage a day, we could increase that funding by double or triple. So to me, that always hits home. Um, And I think the lack of funding is really frustrating. So I'm a clinical researcher and my passion is research, but that's not paid necessarily by our our work, right? So um, as wonderful as my job is, I have to find outside funding in order to support these research endeavors. So all those questions that I had, right? I wanna fill all these gaps, they cost money. Um, I used to be, back when I called myself a silly young doctor, I used to say, okay, but this doesn't cost a lot of money, but now that I'm a silly, slightly less young doctor, uh, my time costs money, right? I, I unfortunately um, can't go to work during the day and take care of patients and do research at night. My husband would probably not appreciate <laughs> that. Um, so everything costs costs money and we just don't have enough of it for pediatrics right now. Right. Yeah, I the first time I'd heard that stat, I was shocked. And then the person kind of, and I, and I said that to the person, I was like, 4%, like that, that is minuscule. Like what, what about um, the projects that may have started at the adult level, but do ultimately trickle down to the pediatric side? Is that, is that equated into that? He's like, no, that's not equated into that number. So maybe there's some margin to increase that number a little bit, but um, I, I was just, I was a little dumbfounded and they kind of went into some of the reasoning. There's some business reasons why, and, and like as a business person, I get that. Um, it doesn't make anyone feel any better. Um, in fact, if anything, it kind of makes it a little worse, but I, I, I get the numbers and the statistics behind it. Um, so while we can only do so much, um, obviously through team Joey, we have a, a, a piece of that, that is, that is into funding pediatric oncology research. Um, and, and we're happy to have supported you in, in some of your projects there. Why don't you share with our folks um, what your project is that, you're, uh, that we've provided some funding for and, and, and kind of where things are at right now? Yeah, I'd love to. So I have a very big passion for something that's called neurotoxicity, and it sounds fancy, um, but if listeners, if anyone you know has diabetes, type 2 diabetes, it's that, that pins and needles feeling um, that a lot of patients get in their feet. And essentially what it is, is the nerves are damaged. It starts um, kind of what we call the stocking glove, meaning your hands and feet burning, tingling. Um, and in adults, it's more of a, a nuance. It's like, ah, that really sucks type of thing. But you can imagine for kids, especially small children, that um, if you've ever seen a toddler try to walk, having um, all of the perception in their feet is really important. Some of our chemotherapy, especially a medicine called vincristine, which is actually the most widely used medicine. I would not be surprised if that's something you've seen before. Oh, I was a recipient of that mm-hmm. lovely drug. It's a wonderful drug, um, but the main side effect is peripheral neuropathy or essentially mm-hmm. damages those those nerves. And so um, 
one of the questions I had way back when was, why do these kids keep tripping? And then we also give them steroids. Their bones are fragile. So now you've got this kid you've set up for failure. You've given them Zincristine. They can't feel their feet very well. They're tripping all over the place. And then nine times out of 10, their bones are fragile and we come in with fractures or other things. Um, And even if it's not that bad, you have teenagers who are getting Hodgkin therapy that actually feel pretty good, but can't participate in the sports they want to play. Nowadays, it's gaming. I get that a lot. I can't use the the controller on my game. Um, And so what my project looks at is how do we detect neuropathy early? Um, Right now, it's really hard, right? I don't know if anyone has kids, but if I ask my 17-month-old if he has numbness and tingling in his feet, he knows like the word car, and that's probably (laughs) how he would respond. Right. So um, our detection tools for neuropathy are not great. Um, But if we look at some of the literature, what we think we've found is something called a biomarker, something in the blood that can actually tell us when that axone is damaged. And if we can find that out sooner and more reliably and more sensitive, then we can intervene before we start seeing clinical changes, um, kids tripping, things like that. So that's really what I focus on. Yeah. So I was going to just about to ask you, how do you, aside from asking the the, the patient, in this case, a kid, are you having these sensations? I mean, if they're 17 months, you're not going to get a whole lot of feedback. Um, and And I, and you know, based on the patient, you may get varying levels of, of responses back. So yet yeah, to know that there's a, an actual test that can be done and, and a, I won't say an easy one, but a relatively easier one, with a, with a simple blood draw, right? Yeah, it's really easy. And our kids have something called a port, um, which essentially right. is dr- a direct access. So you don't even have to do a, a lab draw or, you know, stick them yeah. to get the results. So um, it's kind of like cheating, we say in research, you, you've got a direct line. So that's what my project really looks at is, um, is correlating this possible biomarker and then seeing when kids develop symptoms. Uh, maybe a dumb question, but I'm full of dumb questions. Um, how, how accurate is this biomarker? That's the question. It looks like it's pretty accurate okay. if you look in mouse models. So some people have looked in at, at my mouse models, which I'm not going to pretend how you know if a mouse has neuropathy. Not my, not my forte. I'm sure there's ways to tell, but right. um, they've found that they'll give these mice a dose of vincristine, and then they will look for this biomarker, and it matches up really well. So it's really promising, um, and we should actually have our first round of data within the next year to tell us how accurate we are going to be. Awesome. That would be good to know. Okay. Um, anything else? How how is the project going so far? I mean, and how long how long have you have you long how long have you been uh, active in the project? And then what's what's the lifespan of it at this point? Yeah. So the project's been probably active about 18 months now. Um, And we have, so far we have 85 unique samples. And what we do is rather than just getting one time point on on one kiddo, we actually get serial time points. And so we get a time point or a blood draw before they get any vincristine and then after each dose of vincristine. And so we have 20 different patients that we actually have samples longitudinally. Um, And the goal is to get 100 samples. That way we can send everything off in one batch if you, if you send them off in different batches, you get what's called a, a batch analysis issue. Um, so we try to send them in one batch, and the hope is within the next six months um, that we'll be able to send them off. And the other goal of the project was to make sure we had a, a large age range, right? So I want some three-year-olds. Yeah. I want some seven-year-olds. We don't want all teenagers. Right. Um, and so that was been the other part of the project, and we've successfully now filled all of our buckets. Okay. 
how how much season is it over the next six months, and then and then what time frame is it going to require to then go through all the all the the data that you have, and then come up with, um, I don't know what, what what is it what is the end goal here? Yeah, the end goal right now is what we just call a signal. So I'm okay. not looking, you know, it'd be great. I'd love to lie and say yes, we're going to get the answer in six months, but the goal right now is is there a signal? How early can we pick up this axonal damage? Um, if at all, I think we're pretty confident that we will, but the goal is to prove that we can pick it up earlier than before the patient starts tripping. And so when we take our blood draw, we also do a really good assessment of the patient. And so the goal is that we're trying to show this biomarker will flag earlier before the patient starts having symptoms. And I think we'll get that data. Is it possible to identify, um, you know, you have two different patients here before they even start receive the treatment patient A is, is, is highly likely to have this, um, uh, what, what would you call it? I was going to say phenomenon, but that's not right. Yeah. Complication. This complication yeah. and patient B, uh, based on, you know, whatever you have, uh, the signal that they may already may or may not have, um, they m- more than likely won't have this issue. Yeah. So what you're describing is kind of my overall dream of the world is something called a predictive model. And so predictive modeling around neuropathy hasn't been done yet um, because we don't have enough data. It's one of the gaps, right? We don't know. We need to first understand what causes neuropathy and then we can identify individuals. Like you said, if patient A has, for example, there's specific genes that say you're going to be more sensitive to this. So that's my dream is one day we can say, hey, patient A, you have a high risk of developing neuropathy. We're going to start you on a medication now versus patient right. B. Let's watch and wait and see. Um, but I think someday that's going to be a reality. Yeah, I think just personally having been through it, if you could somehow detect certain things, okay, he, he or she, I remember the doctor saying, okay, here's a list of possible side effects. And it was like, uh, let's say it was 15. It's probably a thousand. You might get 15, all 15. You might get one. Like, I don't know. It wouldn't be great like if they when they do the blood draw, which they did a bazillion of, that okay, you're more predisposed to these three. These other seven or eight we're highly confident you will not have. Now, it's in a perfect world, right? I don't know that that's reality, but that would be kind of cool. It would be really great. And I think the other thing that a lot of people don't understand, um, which goes back to the grant funding, is people want to fund the cure, right? People aren't as interested in this. But if you think about and you say, okay, well, Jenny, what is the cure for neuropathy? Right now, the best thing we have is we take away the vincristine. So we take away the life-saving medication. And so if you do the math, if I take away the vincristine, I'm lowering your chance of survival. So if we can detect this neuropathy earlier, then I can keep that life-saving medication. Maybe it's not 100%, but maybe it's a 50% dose rather than a 0% dose. Well, so that that, that was my follow-up question. Let's say you detect it. What are the options then? I mean, you're not going to not administer vincristine. Is it lowering the dose? Is it providing... um, something else to aid in that uh, situation? It actually is removing the dose. It is. Okay. Yeah. So the the goal is you don't get that far where you have to remove the dose. So there are okay. certain grades. And once you hit a certain grade, it's okay, we're no longer giving you this medication. But there's other things you can do before that. Easy things, physical therapy, home exercises. Okay. There's an, an easy medication that can at least mask symptoms. So there's a lot of easier things we can do beforehand. And in my mind, it's okay, we have this this patient with mild, very mild neuropathy. Let's lower the dose to 75% now. 
rather than waiting until it's detected clinically when we have to take away the entire dose. So hopefully the biomarker will allow us that early detection that we don't have to take away or omit the entire right. dose. And now you're being proactive instead of reactive to whatever's presented. Yeah, yeah, and we can alert parents, right? I mean, a lot of these kids still go to school and daycare, but we can say, right. you know, hey, you scored this. You know, let us know if he starts tripping and right. and be able to provide more anticipatory guidance to families too. Yeah. Now, if you've been out 23 years and you still have um, a, an issue of tripping, is that, could I still blame it on this or you definitely, have other issues? You definitely can. Could be some other issues compounded, but hey, once you get Ben Christine, you can blame anything in the world on it. Oh, perfect. Yeah. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the premise for this podcast was built around sharing cancer stories. And, you know, I've talked, we, everybody has not just one, we have, most of us have multiple. What, uh, what is your cancer story? Yeah. Or I, stories. well, you prepped me on this question. So then I've been racking my brain. What's <laughs> the best one? But, you know, I think it goes back to Lou. So, okay. um, so Lou is no longer with us. She passed away at the end of her, her story, but I met her at the, we'll call it the middle of her journey, she had um, AML or mm -hmm. a, a very acute um, myeloid type of leukemia. She was a teenager and going through all of the wonderful teenage uh, angst, we'll call it. Um, and she actually beat her leukemia um, for the first time and then it relapsed, which is where I met her. Um, she just really was having a tough time of it. Um, her boyfriend broke up with her because he called her uh, too high maintenance, uh, which is my favorite, mm. uh, for our patients. Um, but she just, she just was really struggling. Um, and she ended up, I ended up spending most of my nights watching Pride and Prejudice in her room and just trying to get her to open up to me a little bit. And, um, it worked and we ended up really just kind of bonding over things. And it was kind of that relationship that I was like, wow, yeah, I've seen her really sick. She's gone to the ICU. She's up here on the floor, and now we're, you know, just chatting about Pride and Prejudice. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night while we were watching Pride and Prejudice, um, she ended up having a code, and her heart stopped while I was in the room. We ended up getting her back. Long story short, she ended up going for a stem cell transplant, and the same thing happened. And so I think mm -hmm. seeing her, you know, beat things once, and then even though she beat it, she was just kind of left as the shell of a human. And that's really what what got me interested is, is how do we help these kids not only beat this, but be normal kids that can go out and do the things that they want to do. And Lou right. didn't really get that chance. Um, and so every, every time I see a kid that reminds me of Lou, I say, okay, how can we, how can we give a kid that chance? Is it safe to say that Lou, um, is that spark, uh, for you or that kind of, maybe I'll call it an, an ignition as I like to say to myself, whenever I hear another story about someone passing away uh, from cancer, it just it just restokes that fire to do something. It definitely does. And so, Lou, you know, we all we all know kids and teenagers have the wristbands, right? And the wristbands, I could tell you a million sayings that are around the wristbands. But for Lou, it's interesting. Um, her family actually changed their wristband. So uh, at first, it was a a fight for Lou wristband, mm -hmm. and then when she relapsed, it was a pray for Lou wristband. And then when she became a palliative care patient, it just said Lou with a heart. And so I keep those three wristbands in order. Um, they hang from the, the corner of my computer screen. And so every time I look at those, you know, as cliche or whatever as it sounds, it just reminds me, you know, this is a journey that yeah. ended not great for someone, but if we keep fighting, then can hopefully end differently for others. Yeah, well said. Um, I'm sorry to hear about that story. Um, I guess the 
silver lining, if you will, is it, it does kind of you know, re-energize if, you, if that even is ever needed, but just you know, further um, stokes that passion for doing what you're doing. We appreciate what you guys do, and we're happy to support it. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Someday, hopefully, I always say, I hope I don't have a job, but until then, we'll keep fighting. Right, exactly. Um, thank you for your time coming on the podcast. We appreciate that. Thank you for um, having me. Keep Just keep doing what you're doing. We're happy to support it. Really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Awesome. And thank all you guys for joining us on this episode of the Summits Podcast. We thank you guys for taking the time out of your day to listen or watch us on the Heroes Foundation YouTube channel. Also, if you are on the YouTube channel and you haven't hit that subscription bell or the little notification bell icon to be alerted when new episodes like this one drop, please do so. It won't cost you a penny. Thanks again, guys, for your time. We appreciate you tuning in. And don't forget, beat cancer.